How would you define greatness? And don't say the Seahawks. <laughs> a few years back, there was a commercial, and as the commercial opened up and began, there was two men dressed in their armor, swinging weapons, one a giant battle axe against two short swords, and the axe falls and the battle is over. And then it transitions in the commercial of the two men racing their sports car through a countryside and mountains rising up on both sides as they, as they fight for position. One car aggressively bumps the other so it hits the guardrail and overturns in the shower of sparks. And on the screen, it, it, it just comes across, greatness awaits. And it continues on, two men lead their futuristic armies as they wage a, a war to defend and overthrow a city. And they march bravely through the noise and the confusion and all of the, the turmoil of this and then come through the screen and it says, greatness awaits. Greatness awaits. Greatness is there for the, for the taking. If only you, you reach out and you take a hold of it. And this was a promise made by Sony and their campaign for the new PlayStation, a, a video game console. It was a theme of their, their marketing uh, the challenge of the commercial uh, was as astonishing. In the first month, it had 12 million views on YouTube. People ate this up. And the, the campaign and the commercial have been received with, with such incredible enthusiasm. People get it. People wanted it. They respond to that. They want this greatness. But what if we were to say, yeah, that's not greatness at all. This morning, we're going to venture back into the Gospel of John, and in chapter 13, we're going to see greatness defined by Jesus. I trust his definition more than I trust Sony. Greatness defined by us, by our Savior. So if you haven't already, turn to John chapter 13, and follow with me as we read. We're just going to cover verses 1 through 17 this morning, Lord willing. Starting in verse 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And during supper, when the devil had already put in the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. And he laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. And he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. And he came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered him, what I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. And Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you, should also, that you also should do just as I've done to you. 
Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. This is the last supper between Jesus and his men, his disciples. It's not mentioned here in this gospel, but in the gospel of Luke, we're told that this is the last supper. And during the meal, if you read the other gospel accounts, a a fight breaks out in between the disciples over who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom. The disciples believed that very soon Jesus Christ was going to reign and take over the kingdom. He was going to remove all the Roman oppression and come in power. And so during the meal, an argument begins to, to, to erupt of who's the greatest? Who's going to have the highest office in the cabinet? One is saying that he's going to be the secretary of state. And the other one replies, yeah, you're not good enough. You're going to be the secretary of the, the, the interior. They're fighting each other, debating And the significance of that night and the next day is lost on them. They're totally saturated with themselves. They're they're caught up with what the world defines as greatness. They thought power was the goal. And here they are standing right at the doorstep of the greatest display of greatness and power the world has ever seen. And Jesus is is about to ascend to the heights by descending to the depths. Jesus Christ is about to pull off the greatest victory by being captured and tortured and oppressed and murdered. Jesus' understanding of power and success is so completely opposite than that of the world. It's so different than the world. It, it, It cut against everything the world understands of greatness. And Jesus says the way up is down. The way to power is to serve. The way to get happiness is not to seek your own happiness, but the happiness of somebody else. This is an inside-out understanding of greatness. And, And as Jesus is about to display the greatest act of love and humility, the men are fighting over positions. They're they're fighting over the, the corner office with a view. Jesus is going to display for them what life should look like as a Christian. It's gonna teach them and Lord willing, teach us this morning. Before we dive into the chapter, would you join me in prayer? God, we we come to you because we need you. God, I need you. I need your help. Pray that you would give clarity of mind to me, but I pray that you would give receptiveness to your people, that they'd hear your word, they'd understand. As we look at these, these verses here this morning, God, that they would see the heart of the Savior. They would understand and they would recognize the example that you've laid out for us and that they would receive the challenge that you've laid out for us. God, I thank you for your word. I thank you that it teaches us, that it corrects us, that holds us up, encourages us, and I pray that all those things will be true here this morning as we look into your word. Thank you for our time here. In Jesus' name, amen. There's three things I want you to notice as we go through these verses this morning. And First is the heart of the Savior, second is the example of the Savior, and third is the challenge of the Savior. 
First, the heart of the Savior. What is, what is the heart of our Savior? What does it look like? Well, John writes for us in verse one, that before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. This is love. Jesus is, is going to display for us what love truly is. He's gonna show us humble love. This is the type of love that's what Jesus lives for. And you notice, as I just read in verse one, that John teaches what the rest of his gospel will be about. He writes that he, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. He's shown us his love on earth, and he wasn't finished. He didn't stop loving them. And he was about to show them the proof of his love. He had come from God and God had given him everything and now he's going back. And John 13 begins the final goodbye of Jesus to his disciples. It stretches out here from John 13 all the way to the end of the book. Just the remaining hours that he has on earth with his disciples. And he's thinking about his mission. He's, he's thinking about his career. And there's two parts to it. And the first we understand, he, he comes down. He, he leaves the place of honor. He sets aside the robes of glory to bring on the flesh of humanity. We just celebrated this in Christmas, right? We sang about it. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. Please as man with men to dwell. Jesus, our Emmanuel. We celebrated this. But that's only the first part. Only half the mission. He came from God to be man. Now he comes as a servant. He doesn't come as one to lead a political party to victory. Instead, he comes as one who will be crushed, who will be disgraced, who will be tortured, and who will die. And a servant is somebody who's willing to die. A servant is someone who is willing to take the hit. You ever heard that phrase before? Take the hit. It's actually a, a football analogy, I believe. Take the hit. Now, here's the example. Most of you watched the football game yesterday, I'm assuming, right? We didn't see this play out, but here's an example. You might. There's a quarterback, and he's holding on to the ball, and he needs a touchdown to win. And the ball's snapped, and there's two seconds he needs at least to throw the ball to connect to the receiver, to end the game, to win the game. And he has a receiver who's going to be open by the time the ball would get there. And if he can hold the ball just for two more seconds before that happens, he knows that the ball will land in the receiver's hands and score a touchdown instead of losing the game they want to win the game. But there's a problem. There's a defensive end streaming right toward the quarterback who's really going for his head. He wants to take him out. And it looks like in two seconds, the defensive end is going to do that. He will take them out. Well, the problem is there's a failure of some, some sort here. There's been a collapse. There's been a wrongdoing here. Why is that defensive end coming, steaming in, ready to take off the quarterback's head? And why is no one standing in his way? You know, he's coming in the clear. Why? What's the problem? Well, there's been a sin. The reasons can be complex. Maybe it's that his blocker decided to take the coward's way out and say, oh, I'm not going to block him. 
Instead of going in there and, and, and hitting the defensive player, he, he doesn't. He, he, he's afraid. He sees the eyes of the defensive end and he says, I'm, I'm getting out of here. I'm moving away. So was it a coward that was unwilling to block? Or maybe it was a bad draft pick. The guy just can't do it. Maybe it was the, the line coach that didn't coach well, didn't train his, his men well. Maybe it was the fact that there's a very selfish guy sitting on his couch because he wanted to get paid more, and he was the guy to be there to block, but instead he's watching on TV. And so now you have someone on the line who, who is not qualified for that position. And see, the reasons are many, and it can be very complex, the laughs, but now there's a cost. Who's going to absorb the cost? You know, if the quarterback eats the ball, if he just goes down, he avoids what looks like is going to be a very nasty injury, then the whole team takes a hit. The whole team loses the game. But on the other hand, the quarterback decides to stay in the pocket and wait those two seconds and throw the ball, and they win the game, he'll most likely get injured. There's no one in the way between the defensive end and the quarterback. There's a hit that has to be taken. Who's going to take the hit? Will it be the line coach? Will it be the blocker who missed his block and blamed for the loss? Will it be the guy sitting on the couch who knew better, who knew he could block that guy? Will it be the quarterback? Who's going to take the hit? Who's going to serve the team? Do you know what a servant is? Defining even, what is it? Where does it start to be a servant? I believe it begins in the heart. You know, a servant's heart is one that gets up and says, I don't know whose fault it is, but I'm going to do something. I'm going to bear the cost. I'm going to take the hit. I'm the one. It's on me. Jesus Christ, who knows exactly why he came into this world, will get up and will decide to clean the feet of everyone there because no one else will do it. Nobody wants to get low. No one wants to get down there and clear, clean off these dirty feet. It's not happening. And Jesus Christ says, somebody has to do it. It's not my fault, but I'm going to do it. You see, I'm, I'm, I'm not talking about the cost of a lost football game here. We're talking about the infinite misery and cruelty of all the sins of the centuries being placed on the back of Jesus Christ. He says that he will love them to the end. Do you see the magnitude of what he's about to suffer? Do you see the fact that he, he suffered hostility and alienation? He suffered spiritual despair. He suffered physical torture. God himself, God the Father, pours out his infallible lava of divine justice, everything sin deserved, on his son, Jesus, because he was our humble servant. He got down on his knees. He left his place. He went that low. Because that was his mission. This, my friends, is the only way out. This is the only way to freedom. Only when somebody bears the cost is there true freedom. I mean, think about it. Back to the football analogy. Don't you think that if the quarterback sits in the pocket and takes the hit and wins the game and how he's really hurt, don't you think the line coach, don't you think the guy that was cowardly, unwilling to block, or, or the guy that sat at home and knew better to be there, don't, th don't you think they're going to go to the quarterback and say, thank you? Thank you. If you hadn't taken that hit, I would be bearing this burden. I would have it all on my own. If you hadn't taken the hit, everyone would have hung this defeat on me. But because of you, I'm free from that. 
That's what Jesus did. He died. What does that mean? He has died and he has borne the cost. It means your sins can no longer separate you from God. This is the gospel. The gospel is that your sins cannot bring you into condemnation. They no, no longer can stand between you and God. It means that, that, that God can completely receive you and accept you. That all of your guilt, anything you've ever done, all of it is taken away from you. And God regards you as perfectly beautiful and righteous and acceptable. Because Jesus took the hit. And love is choosing to serve others more than yourself. Jesus chose love. And he shows us the way of servanthood. He's our example. But I'm not done. I'm just getting started, okay? Because we see the heart of the Savior. The next thing I want you to see is the example of the Savior. Verse 4, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid outside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water in a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Jesus gets down and he washes their feet. The description of washing is one of the most menial and most humble of kinds of service. Washing someone's dirty feet in that environment was something only slaves did. And even in some areas, it was illegal to make your slaves do it. It was disgusting. It was low. And yet, here we have Jesus. God in the flesh. Going low to wash their feet. God, who created everything, who is worthy of our worship here in the flesh, humbles himself in this way. He takes the position of sort of a slave below slaves. He will, he will tell them and tell us, this is what life is all about. You know, this isn't common information for the disciples at this point. It isn't like Jesus had been serving in this menial way for the last three years. He hadn't. He had been teaching and healing and, and helping, but he hadn't humbled himself in this, in this way. This was brand new to these men. And so these men are, are sitting around, I'm sure, shocked of what's happening. What is happening here? What is Jesus doing? Doesn't he recognize this is not for him? And you might wonder what's going through their minds one by one, but you don't have to wonder very long because Peter's mind is going to come out of his mouth. Right? Thoughts come in and they go out. And he says, Lord, do you wash my feet? And his, his meaning in, in the Greek is much more emphatic. You wash my feet? You, Jesus? You're going to do this? Don't you understand what you're doing? The idea of the Lord of glory washing his dirty feet didn't fit into Peter's thinking. And Jesus patiently responds, what I am doing, you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. And Jesus is referring to, after his death and resurrection, which he was pictured with the foot washing. And how many times as I read through that, that response from Jesus to Peter, how many times can we identify with this? 
that we really need to identify, that we really need to hold on to this, that as Christians, there are times we find it hard to understand what God is doing in our lives. And there may be situations that come to your mind right now. And you recognize, you know, he know he has a plan for our life. But what's happening, we would never choose. And the way that he's answering prayers and working things out isn't the way that we would, would do it. And there are times for every single one of us here that God works in ways that are hard to understand. And Jesus' response to Peter is teaching us this morning that what he is doing now, you may not understand. But there's a promise. Afterward, you will understand. We need that, right? We need this promise. Because in the midst of it, we want to understand. We want to have the answers. God doesn't promise it that it'll happen instantaneously, but he does promise you'll understand. And it may not be on this side of heaven. But regardless, in his response to Peter, he's calling us to trust him. To believe his word and to accept his providence and know that in the end, we will understand. Well, Peter wasn't ready to patiently wait for the answer. And with his exuberance pointed in the wrong direction, Peter challenges his Lord. He's inconsistent, though. Peter was too humble to allow Jesus to wash his feet, but too proud-hearted enough to rebuke. And he does that. He rebukes his master. Peter says to Jesus, you shall never wash my feet. Again, the, the English lacks the intensity of Peter's response. He's, he's saying to his Lord, you will never, ever, 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 ever wash my feet. And a few more evers in there. He's emphatic. You're, you're not going to do this. You can't do this. You know, Peter hears the word of God and he argues with it. He doesn't accept it. He doesn't abide by it. He doesn't believe it. He rejects it. And Jesus' response is patient and loving and gracious. And he's going to show him his heart. Jesus answered him and said, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. This is a serious response by Jesus. The Greek word for share is meaning an inheritance. So Jesus is telling Peter that unless he washed him, Peter cannot enter into his inheritance. He cannot enter into heaven. And with these words, Jesus is advancing the symbol of this foot washing to what's, what's about to happen, what's going to happen the next day. For Jesus' act of servanthood was, was more than a mere demonstration of humility. It was a prelude to the greater humi humiliation of the cross. Do you remember Matthew 20, 28? It says, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He's teaching them here. But something interesting I, I saw this week as as I was finishing the sermon and reading through some commentaries and Boyce's commentary, it was very intriguing. And, and so I wanna kind of walk through here what he laid out. He says, if we look carefully at the sequence of the events in this passage and, and look then how closely they connect to Jesus's ministry in the world, we're gonna, be, we're gonna see some connections. First, Jesus left his seat just as he left his heavenly throne so that he can come into our world. 
Second, he laid aside his outer garments. And this closely connects to Paul's words in describing how Jesus set aside his glory, as it's written in Philippians. Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. And next, Jesus took the towel and tied it around his waist. And Paul says that Jesus took on the form of a bondservant, being the likeness of men. And fourth, Jesus poured water in the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet just as in a few short hours he was to pour out his blood for the washing away of human sin by the atonement. And last, Jesus completed his act of service by rising again and taking his seat back at the table, which corresponds with Jesus' resurrection and ascension to glory after his finished work on the cross. And Hebrews says, after making purification for sins, he, Jesus, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He sat down because it was finished. And so this is why Jesus responds the way he does to Peter. If, if Peter will not allow him the, the partial humiliation of washing his feet, how is he to embrace the full and complete humiliation that would be Jesus dying on the cross for him the next day? He's instructing them. He's teaching them what was about to happen. You know, deep down in all of us, we don't think we need a savior, right? I mean, if you're honest with yourself, you think, I can just do it on my own. I'm not that bad. And Jesus' whole teaching here is to say, you need me to go low, to serve you, to humiliate myself. You need this. So he teaches them by showing them what's going to happen. This is why I've, I've come. Are you to understand this? Do you understand even who you are? Let me illustrate that. Let's say somebody gives you a machine. It has lights, it has noises, it moves, it works, it's doing something. And I hand it to you and say, Here's a present for you, and it's big. You can't put it in your pocket, but here's a gift for you. And you say, well, thanks. It's big. It's busy. It's very impressive. But what's it for? And your friend looks at you and says, I, I don't know. Enjoy. Well, what good is it then? What good is that machine? You, you know, you, you think you look at it, and you think this is really impressive. I want to find out what this is for. What's the purpose of this machine? I'm going to ask the one who made it. Is there a label on here somewhere? Let me find the manufacturer. You know, I have Google, so I'll Google the manufacturer. I'm going to find out what this was made for. So now hearing that, pause and look at your life. You live in the Northwest. You're busy. Your lives are, are full of lights and noises and movements. You have the busyness of life, the relentless life that keeps going day after day, the merry-go-round of life that won't stop, no one can turn it off, and you're in the middle of it, and you're so busy, and it's full of lights and noises and movements, and the question comes to your mind, what's this for? Have you ever asked that question? Have you ever asked that about your life? What's this for? The lights, the noises, the movements, what, what's the purpose of it all? You know, as soon as you ask that question, you are into religion. 
As soon as you start to ask any kind of substantial question, look at this wonderful machine, look at my life, look at the lights, look at the noises, look at the, the movements. As soon as you say, now what's it for? What is it, why does it really matter? What is life all about? What does it mean? As soon as you ask that, you're into religion. Because the only way to understand what this life is for, to understand what this machine does, is to get in touch with the manufacturer. And unfortunately, for some of you here this morning, you refuse to get in touch with the manufacturer. You know, you don't do it for the rest of your life. When you have a washing machine that you know should work and it's not working, and you want to find out, you start jumping on the Google, you're going to find the manufacturer, you're going to find the manual, you're going to try to figure out how can I get this to work, right? You, you say, I, I, this needs to work, it has a purpose. But for your life, for your marriage, for your kids, for your difficulty at work, you ignore the manufacturer. Maybe go to him, but you're going to go to something else after it. And here this morning, hopefully with your Bible open in front of you, Jesus, the manufacturer of your life, is saying, let me tell you what your life is about. Let me tell you what I'm about. And when you understand who I am, you'll understand why you're here. It's for this kind of greatness, Jesus says. Life is about service. Life is about love that chooses to serve others more than itself. Love that goes low, that comes down out of its place. This is what Jesus is saying to us this morning. This is what he's all about. And this is what we should be all about. This is what our life should be all about. And now I understand that some of you here this morning have very important jobs in your workplace. You are the boss. The buck stops with you. You have people, lots of people that answer to you. You're the one that makes lots of decisions that affect a lot of people and the chain of command ends with you. So maybe you read this and think, well, in my job, I'm not the lowly servant. I'm actually the guy up here. And I want to be clear, Jesus is not saying quit your job. It's not what he's saying here. He placed you there. And he's saying to you, and we'll see this more clearly in the next point, serve others where you're at. It doesn't mean you get a new job. It just means you look at people differently than you did maybe before. You know, Jesus didn't shy away from titles. Look at verse 13 that we read. You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for I am. He knew his place. He knew who he was. He was their Lord. And he's saying, treat your position. Treat your job as a servant. Look to others to serve them. Love others. And Jesus is displaying for us a, a radical volunteerness of, of his, his life and then his death. If you remember earlier in John's gospel, Jesus said, no one takes my life from me I lay it down on my own accord. Do you remember that? Jesus is under no obligation. He's under no obligation to get down, to get low, to wash the feet of these disciples. 
The reason Jesus is washing the feet is to show that this is beyond his duty. He's not obliged to do it. It's completely voluntary. He doesn't owe us. He doesn't owe us a single thing. And he says throughout John's gospel that no man, no man takes away his life. He's going to lay it down. He has the power to do this. See, when, when death meets you and meets me, we are victims because we deserve death. But when death met Jesus Christ, Jesus was not a victim of death. Death was not the fate of Jesus. It was his deed. There's a clear difference, folks. We have no choice in the matter. We don't get to choose. Jesus did. He was under no obligation. He chose death for us. As one old teacher said, it's, it's as almost as if Jesus Christ walked into a room and took his body and soul and ripped it apart. He died the death. He was willing to do that. This is what life is about. You know, until you understand this, all the lights, all the noises, all the beeps and the whizzes of, of life and the worlds mean nothing. Jesus is saying, this is what you should be living for. This is what I'm living for. This is what you should be living for. Humbly serving others. So this leads to my last point this morning, the challenge. So we've seen the heart of the Savior, the example. Last is the challenge. Charles Schultz, does that name ring a bell? Famous for his Peanuts cartoon. It was also known to asking people as they evaluate their life and asking questions of who and what was important. And he had two, two sets of questions he was known to ask people. And this is the first set. The first set he would ask, who are the five wealthiest people in the world? Next, name the last five winners of the Heisman Trophy. Name the, fa the, the last five winners of the Miss America pageant. Name the last five winners of the Nobel Peace Prize. Name the last five winners of Best Actress and Best Actor of the Academy Awards. And then name the last five teams to win the World Series. He'd say, yeah, answer these questions, and people would struggle. And the point of these questions was to show that we remember very few of these famous achievers because they rarely have any impact on our life. They're just there. And the second set of questions he asked, he said to name different type of people, different class of people. And he would say, name a few teachers who helped you through school. Name some friends who helped you through a difficult time. Name people who, who taught you something worthwhile. Name some people who, who made you feel appreciated. Name some people that you enjoy spending time with. And these second set of questions, they would always have answers. More than five. Easily recalling people in this way. And why? Schultz answered, the people who make a difference in your life are not the ones who have the most credentials, the most money, or the most awards. They're the ones that care. 
They're the ones that serve. And in this last section here of this passage, Jesus is challenging us to be the type of person that someone else will remember. Not because they achieve awards and riches, because they serve, because they care. Verse 12, when he had washed their feet and put on their outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I've done to you? You know, you might have a good theological answer. Jesus, you have shown that salvation requires us to be cleansed by your atoning blood, just as you've cleansed our dirty feet with water. And that answer is correct. But then Jesus doesn't stop there. Verse 13, he says, you call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. Jesus here is teaching what we see throughout the New Testament, the essence of love which is serving others for the glory of God. The essence of love is being committed to someone else's greatness and their glory. Remember the last time we were in John in chapter 12, we talked about glory. And glory is enduringly important. And servant love is not necessarily to please a person to make them happy. Servant love is to sacrifice whatever is necessary to give somebody what they need to live eternally. And the Bible teaches us that human nature is really made of eternal stuff that were built originally to be like God, to reflect God, to be with God, and to know God. Not just be a good person, not just do good things. And so servant love has an eternal perspective on the individual. Servant love means I see things that can bring you to God. I'm going to do whatever it takes to get you there. And there, of course, is a counterfeit kind of love that is displayed quite frequently in this world. We buy into this counterfeit love. A love that is actually opposite of servant love. And yet this is the type of love that the world clamors after, that, the, that, that Hollywood produces movies and books are written. This is the love that everyone thinks they need. It's a selfish ambition that says, I love you, I want to have you, I want you. And I want you to satisfy me. And I want my needs to be satisfied through you. But that's not the love that we see from Jesus. Servant love says, I love you. I want your best. I want your freedom. I want peace for you. I want to bring you to God and I will do anything it takes to get you there. Even if you don't like it and you think that I'm hurting you. I love you and I want better for you. That is a servant love. That is how a servant talks and lives. Jesus Christ says this is the meaning of life. This is the the life that's characterized here by a servant. Jesus displays this. If you remember back in verse 1, it says Jesus, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. If he was under no obligation, folks, he could have stopped at any point. And you may think they're having dinner and they're arguing about who has the highest position. This is off. I'm not doing this for them. And yet you see the patient, enduring, gracious love of our Savior who continues to walk with them. And not only them, he, he walks with us to the end. 
You know, Jesus didn't love the disciples based on their worthiness. They weren't. Neither are we. They were unworthy of his love. Jesus didn't pick disciples that he thought, ooh, they'll, they'll be good for me. It's not at all. And likewise, we don't pick our friends based upon what they do for us. We don't befriend people and minister to people just because we think they're worthy. We should serve the same way as Jesus. Serving those regardless of who they are and what they can do for us. Remember, Jesus was criticized heavily by the Pharisees for eating with tax collectors and, and prostitutes. How dare you do this? Don't you understand, Jesus, who they are? They're the most undesirable people of that time. Jesus didn't do that because of their worthiness. You know, this marks the difference between a community and a club. You know, in a club, you choose the people you want to associate with. But in a community, the person you least want to associate with is most likely there. I mean, it works for your, your neighborhood, right? Did anyone live in a neighborhood that when a house is for sale, you get to vote on who gets to buy it? Anyone? You don't get a choice, you know? It can be anyone that moves in there, in the community. And, and folks, this is the church. Church is a community. Church is not a club. We're not Costco. You know, a healthy church will show love that is based on Christ's sacrificial love for us, not the attractiveness of others. And serving others usually requires no special talent, no special ability. But it does take a servant's attitude to, to want to serve others, as well as an observant eye, noticing people, looking and seeing what needs to be done. And if we have a, a servant attitude, we can develop an observant eye. The reason why most of us do not see opportunities to serve is because we're continually thinking about who? Us. We think about ourselves. We haven't learned, as Philippians says, to, to look at others' needs above our own. It's, it's impossible for us to follow Christ's example unless we're watching for other people's needs. This is part of being the church. This is what it means to be the church family. And how often in life have we learned that a family has left our church because of a lack of friendship? Or how often we learn of a young person that drops out of school because they didn't feel like they fit in or our neighbor has serious problems. Some even commit suicide because there's no one involved in their lives. And these things might happen because we're so self-involved that we seldom take any time to get to know other people. And we look for ways to serve them. And folks, I need to be honest. The needs of this church family are far greater than the pastoral staff and the elder board. We can't handle it all on our own. We need the church to be the church. I need you. As an elder board, we, we need you to love and to serve. We need each other. You know, it takes a, a community of committed believers to love each other, to serve each other in humility and compassion. Folks, this is a family. It's not a club. This is why, as an elder board, we're desiring to make a change here at Edgewood Bible Church. We, we want our church to grow and its function like a community. We want to fine-tune some things in our, 
in our church and how we function to be involved in each other's lives. And one area that needs to be addressed is the Sunday morning worship services. We have, for a number of years, offered two services. It began years ago when our church was a little larger. In the last two years, we haven't had the need. And we desire as an elder board to make the change back to having one combined service. You know, I understand. We've discussed it, and we still will. There are positives to this. There are negatives to this. We recognize this. We discussed it. We've prayed about it. But the main reason why this change is necessary is because we desire our church family to know each other, to be involved in each other's lives. You know, for the last two weeks, we've, because of the holidays, we've we got the taste of having the entire church family together for a service. And I don't know about you, but personally, I found it wonderful. From the fellowship to the singing to the learning together, I found it wonderful. One of the saddest things, though, I heard from two people was them seeing another family they hadn't seen over a year, and their response was, I didn't know they still attended. I thought they'd left. And as a shepherd, as a pastor, that that bothered me. So to make this change, we as a church need to think of others as more important than ourselves. I realize that some of you will sacrifice coming to church earlier. Others will sacrifice coming to church later. But the goal in all this is to serve one another. You know, you remember back to the story I shared of Charles Schultz and the questions that he, we answer who really influenced us. When you, when you talk to somebody who's characterized by, by servant love, you don't walk away thinking, what a humble person. You go away thinking how great you feel because you, you've, you've had someone minister to you. Someone who, who concentrated solely on you. And you go away feeling like a million bucks. You don't go away saying, my, what a, what a humble person that was who talked to me. You know, real, real humility, humility never feels like humility when you're experiencing it through somebody else. Instead, you, you feel like you're, you're valued. And Jesus is, is saying this is what life is about, that this can be done when we remove our eyes off ourselves and look at others. Here's the secret. Here's how it comes. He says, in this passage, if I, your teacher and Lord, have washed your feet, so you should wash one another's feet. There's the key. As, as a Christian, someone thinks, if he did this, you see, it's starting to dawn on you. Your eyes glisten as you think about it. And I know that there's the kind of person who says, I, I want to base Christ's love for me on my love for others. So, so you're running around and, and burning yourself up, trying to serve people, trying to help people, hoping that God will accept you and listen to your prayers. That's not what he's saying here. That's the other way around. You're, you're like Peter. It sounds very humble to say, I'm trying my best. I'm trying my best. I'm trying to take care of these people. Take care of this person. Surely now God will love me. It sounds very humble, but it's actually very proud. Like Peter, you don't, you don't see that your situation is so dire that you need a God to die for you. Instead, you have to turn around and say, every day, if my teacher and Lord did this for me, then I can do this for others. And it dawns on you. And Christ is calling us to serve others. You know, the, the biblical model for true church growth is not a spiritual club, but a gospel-centered community that is inspired in attitude of actions and desires to serve one another for the glory of God. 
and he challenges us. He, he doesn't leave us sitting and wondering. He challenges us at the end of the passage here in verse, six, verse 17. He says, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Not only must we know, but we do. You know, in our academic age, there is always a tendency to be satisfied in just merely knowing, but that's not enough. We must act on what we know. We must put into practice. And if we do, Jesus assures us that we have seized not only the key to usefulness, but also the key to happiness. Remember, the key to happiness is not worldly achievements. It's not wealth. Those things quickly fade away and are forgotten. It's being the person that thinks of others as more important than themselves and going out of their way to serve. And I pray that our church would be known for this. Your friends that are here this morning that are not Christians, I want to talk to you for a moment. Christians are people who have decided to make this the sight of Jesus kneeling at our feet, something we do not deserve, something beyond all hope. When you, you make that the hub of your being, the hub of your life, the, the center, make this thing that, that gives your life meaning, I tell you, it's, it's, it's nothing more than one joy after another after another. It's like looking at the face of an enemy and finding there's only love and understanding. It's like looking uh, into the jaws of certain defeat and finding victory. You see Jesus, you see humble servant love, and you see majesty, glory. And this is why so many cannot find God. They are looking for him up there, over there, in the glitz, the glamour, the majesty, the high kingliness. He can't be low. But Jesus is low. He bends down to wash feet. You remember, Peter can't figure this out. Jesus, what are you, what are you doing down there? Peter doesn't get it because Peter doesn't understand the situation that he's in. He doesn't understand the dire straits that he's in, that his life is. He doesn't realize that he needs a dying savior, a foot-washing savior. It goes against his view of what a savior is. And you may feel the same way here this morning. Jesus goes low. Jesus serves because you need this type of savior to pay the penalty for your sins. And you may push back on this. You feel that you're not that bad. Folks, the Bible says we are. We are that bad. Your problem, the reason you can't find God is because Jesus is not too far away or too high. He's too near and too low. Jesus says, unless, unless you let me wash you, you can have no part of me. You know what he's saying is, unless you see your need to be washed, you won't get God. We come in humility. And the way to find God is not to look up, to look down. You know, all this, this whole passage needs to be read and studied in light of the cross. 
but the shadow of the cross coming through. Because when you see that and you understand the cross, you understand what Jesus is saying here. And the way to find God is to see that you're so sinful, you're so weak, you're so helpless, that he had to die for you. He had to do it. He had to go low. He had to serve you. This is our servant king. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this morning again. I thank you for the challenge of your word. As I study and I read, God, I'm convicted. God, even this week, as, as I read and studied again of, of being a servant in service, and it seems familiar, and yet there's so many areas in my own life where I refuse to serve. And maybe that's true for some that are sitting here this morning. I pray that your word would, would bring conviction to their hearts. God, I pray, I desperately pray that, that we as a church, as a leadership, as a pastoral staff are known as people that love to serve, that love to give, that are willing to, to take the hit, to die to ourselves, to serve others. Pray that we can grow in that. Pray that we would remember again the heart of the Savior here in this passage, who you are. God, I thank you that you did not, that you did not give up. You did not throw in the towel. You didn't wash your hands of us. But that you loved us to the end. You were faithful to us. And you gave us an example and you gave us now the challenge. I pray that you would take it to heart. They would look for areas in our lives to serve you, to serve others. Pray you give us a servant's attitude towards everyone here, those that are neighbors or friends or family. God, help us to be more observant. I pray that our church can grow in that. And I pray, God, also for those that are seated here this morning that this all seems very foreign to them, this idea of service, this idea of lowness. May they recognize their need for the Savior. They recognize their need to be washed. I pray you would continue to call them to yourself. May you give them faith to believe and to trust in Jesus. And now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, and now and forever. Amen.